The book of Romans is, as I've said before, one of the most important books in all of the Bible, and you can say that theologically that it probably is the most important. And when you think of the book of Romans, you want to think in terms of who the audience was, and it'll help you appreciate what Paul was doing in the first century. The analogy that we could utilize, there's no single city in the world today like the city of Rome in the first century. But to give you a feel for it, it would be something like Paul writing a letter to a combination of the people in Tokyo combined with the people in Washington, D.C. Because the Roman Empire was not only the largest city in the world, but it was also the capital of the Roman Empire. And that's who Paul is writing to in this book of Romans. So a city like Tokyo, where Junko, you grew up, what, outside of Tokyo, right? 38 million people, largest city, and then the capital of our country and considered the capital of the free world. So combine those two and get a sense of what it was perhaps like to write a letter in the first century. Now, he's not writing to the city, but he's writing to the believers that reside there. We'll we'll see some of that detail. This will be a two-part introduction, Lord willing. Some of you think, well, two-part, that's probably four-part, right? (laughs) Well, I'm going to try to keep it to two. And this morning, we're going to look at the historical background and show you what that city was like from the archaeology that still remains and give you a little feel for what was going on in the first century that brought about this letter. This will give you a greater, not only appreciation for the book, but it should also help you to understand some of the details, some of the things that may not be immediately evident. So this hour or so we'll look more at the historical background, and what I'd like to do next week is give you kind of an overview of the whole book, And you do that so that you have the context. In other words, everything else, all the details, every single word fits within this broader context. And one of the major problems that people have in interpreting Scripture is they don't have a context for the individual passages they're looking at. So we want to develop that so that every passage that we look at individually fits within that broader context. We'll try to do that next week. So this major city of the first century, some of the, in fact, you can appreciate that, and those of you that are engineers, we have a few here, Bruce and I went to school together about, what, 20 years ago or so? (laughs) What? (laughs) We can appreciate some of the architecture and the engineering that exists from the first century. Now, the Colosseum was built after the first century, but still, I mean, what's 100 years in 2,000 years, right? So, things that existed, you know, we think we're so advanced. Today, we could not build structures that will last 2,000 years. So, what you see here, these date to before the first century. And in Rome, you would find temples, you would find all kinds of architecture, political buildings, structures, some of which remain to this day. And in this photograph, the Arch of Severus, and the temple on the right is the Temple of Saturn, 
So you see something of the culture, something of the background. They were religious people, some of them, most of them. But they worshipped uh, many gods. They were polytheistic. These are the unbelievers, obviously. So these are photographs of ancient Rome, the Forum. In other words, here's where this would be the Walmart or the uh, Coronado Center of Rome, right there. Forum, that's what you'd have. Along with political activity that would go on. This is the center of town. This is the center of activity. And again, you have, uh, these are the same temple of Saturn that I showed you in the other photograph. A model that you can see at a museum there. This is a reconstruction of first century Rome. There's the Colosseum. It would have this, what's called the Circus Maximus. And I'll show you some uh, present day photographs of it. And most of the remains that exist today would be in this area here. And then the modern city has grown, obviously, around the archaeological site. Just for, pardon me? Probably, yeah, that right there? That's probably an aqueduct, yes, exactly. If you want to know where the Vatican is today, it would be off the slide over in this area. So this book, and I'll show you more photographs later as we get into some of the other details here. As I said, very, very important. In fact, a lot of the writers have very, very high praise for this book. For example, Coolidge says, this is the profoundest piece of writing in existence. Can you imagine that? Quite high praise. And by the way, for those of you that are new, do exactly what Connie did. Just, you know, interrupt and just interject and do uh, whatever comments you may have. If not, I'll just run over at the mouth and no one will have a chance to do anything. So just jump in. As a result of misunderstanding not only Christianity but the Bible in general, the world, and unfortunately Christians are sometimes influenced by the thinking of the world, the world has misconceptions concerning what Christianity is all about. The book of Romans is one of the fundamental books that helps correct those misconceptions. And some of them, obviously, you would know yourself. A misconception that most of the world thinks, except those that understand biblical principles, is that man has to do everything that he can to reach God. And as a result, virtually every system of belief, every religion outside of Christianity is a system of man trying to reach God. What the book of Romans makes clear is that man is totally incapable of even starting to reach God, and everything must start with God or nothing's going to take place in terms of spiritual things. So Romans corrects that misconception. So man seeks God. Romans is crystal clear, and it says there is none that seeks after God. That's in chapter 3. Well, you might think back, well, I think I felt like I was searching for God at one point in my life. Book of Romans is going to teach us that even before we had a thought of searching for God, God was already working in the circumstances to draw us to himself and to bring us to realize that, in fact, we had a need for God and there was, in fact, a God out there. The book of Romans makes that clear, even in chapter 1. 
that God is already moving to call us to himself. Third misconception, man trying to please God. And this, you know, sometimes Christians fall into this trap as well. There's nothing that you and I can do in the flesh that pleases God. We'll see that in chapters 6 through 8. A lot of people live the Christian life trying to do those things that please God. Going to church, reading their Bible, doing good works, being kind to people, doing things for others as we'd have them do for us. All with the motivation of trying to please God. None of that does that. The book of Romans explains to us how we please God. Now, he wants us to to have the right attitude and the right motive, but it comes from the biblical principles that we'll find in the book of Romans. So, we cannot please God as well. There is none righteous, no, what? Not one, the book of Romans tells us. Isaiah, which you see a lot of Isaiah in the book of Romans, our righteousness, our good deeds, our efforts are like filthy rags. And I won't explain really the literal meaning of that from Isaiah. I think most of you know that. So another attitude that people have is, well, if if you just try your best when everything is said and done, God's got the scales and he's going to put all those things that you did, your best efforts on one side, and your little failings and your just insignificant weaknesses on this other side, and whichever kind of weighs the heaviest in that scale, then he'll check this off, and he'll grade on the curve and say, oh, okay, I'll accept you, come on in. That's a misconception. Book of Romans is going to make clear that no one and nothing that we can do will merit eternal life. It's simply on what has already been accomplished. That'll be crystal clear in the Book of Romans. Some think keeping the Ten Commandments. And most people think, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. I've never murdered anyone. I've never stolen from anyone. Well, Paul was convicted, and he had something of that attitude from his Jewish background, but he realized that it was the law that convicted him. That's Romans chapter 7. And made him realize that he had violated virtually all of the commandments at least inwardly in his heart. And as a result, he stood condemned and was unable to keep the Ten Commandments. And that's true of all of us as well. So these are just a few of the lists we could come up with is longer. Now, a particular issue that was very, very important in the first century, after a Jewish person read the first eight chapters of the Book of Romans, he might come to the conclusion, well, If salvation is open even to Gentiles, as Paul makes clear, what about all of the promises? What about all the promises? What about the covenants? What about all that God said in the Old Testament about the nation of Israel? Aren't we in a special position? What happened to those promises? Well, he's going to go into great detail to answer those issues that were a major question in the first century, and even today, churches wrestle with this issue and take different positions, and in fact, most of these positions that a lot of churches take go against what Paul is teaching in Romans 9 through 11. So we'll take a look at that maybe in, what, five or six years or so. (laughs) So here's just a few misconceptions, and this is a very common one, 
And there's a growing anti-Semitism that is existing in the world today and growing in our country as well. And this will give us a proper perspective. Book of Romans. Another writer, another writer, Baxter, a commentator, says, for the purpose of systematic theology, this is what I began with, Romans, or it, is the most important book of the Bible. So what I said is not original to me. It basically comes from Baxter. Another writer, another commentator, Godet, it is the greatest masterpiece the human mind has conceived. That's high praise, isn't it? In studying it, the quote goes on, in studying it, we find ourselves at every word face-to-face with the unfathomable. In other words, it's going to take some concentration, it's going to take some explanation, but what we're dealing with is revelation from God, some of which is not crystal clear. In fact, to fully understand anything in Scripture, it's all unfathomable, but particularly books like the book of Romans. And that's why we're meeting, and that's why we're going to consider it and take our time so that we understand what God is trying to communicate to us through this book that uh, was written in the first century. Now, I could go on and give you other quotes. For example, Martin Luther says, It is the chief book of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It can never be too much read or studied. And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. So the more you think about it, the more you study it, the more careful that you are with it, it becomes more and more palatable, and in fact sweeter, and becomes more and more valuable to you. That's why we want to be careful in our study of it, and take our time. He goes on to say, this is Luther, it deserves to be known by heart. And in the past, some Christians memorized large portions and sometimes entire books. And perhaps in Luther's day, the whole book of Romans would have been memorized. So it deserves to be known by heart, word for word, by every Christian, including our young people that are here today. And I could give you some other quotes. Tenney. Romans has long been the mainstay of Christian theology. And that's exactly what we want to look at. Now, the book has had a great impact throughout history since the writing of the book initially. It's impacted every revival or recommitment to God throughout history. All of the great revivals started usually with the book of Romans because it deals with the issue of coming to know and to understand how one enters into a relationship with God. And it answers all those misconceptions that sometimes even creep into churches as well. And there's a lot of churches that are works-oriented. In other words, trying to reach God or trying to please God by human efforts. And all of that, the book of Romans corrects. And when people understand that and it clicks in their thinking, then they begin to understand that God has provided everything that's needed. And that transforms not only their thinking, but gives them a transformative regeneration of heart that has its impact in the culture itself. So the Reformation, for example... 
started with the book of Romans. Well, it started with Martin Luther, but it was the book of Romans that uh, started uh, Luther in a new direction. It was at the heart of Calvin's teaching. It was the heart of the Great Awakening. It, it was the heart of the, the revivals in America. And all of the revivals of, of history find their roots in the book of Romans. And it has been influential in the lives of individual Christians throughout history as well. For example, later on, the what's, what we know of is the scholar Augustine. Augustine was very, very, what would you say? What would the word you might use? Pagan, very secular, from a biblical perspective, very sinful, immoral, you would say, as well. And it wasn't until he began to understand the book of Romans that everything in his life changed. Augustine said, I had no wish to read further. There was no need to, for it was as though my heart was filled with a light of confidence and all shadows of my doubts were swept away. And his life was transformed, but it was primarily through the principles and the reading of the book of Romans. Augustine's not alone. Calvin, Luther, all the reformers, all the great leaders through church history, even before, even before the Reformation, some of them lesser known. And the essence of the book, so I'm going to give you what the whole book is talking about in one sentence. Before I do that, some of you that have thought through, what did you come up with? What did you come up with? What's the main idea? In other words, what's the main thing that Paul is trying to communicate in these 16 chapters that we call the book of Romans? Any of you have some? Salvation by faith. That's very good. Salvation by grace through faith. That's a good summary of the book. Excellent. Anyone else? What did you come up with? All of you were working on it, right? Linda's thumbing through her five pages of notes. She's trying to narrow it down to one little sentence. No one else? But add to what Okay, in Christ alone, adding to what Pat said. And that would be good. Yeah, that would be a excellent addition. Anyone else? Linda, there it is. This part shows what we are. That's a good word. That's a good theological word, scumbag. We have way too high opinion. We have way too high, that's the first part of the book, way too high opinion of ourselves. Okay. And in reality, from God's perspective, we're scumbags. Nothing pleasing to God. Well, here's my description in several stages. Could have just read it out of the outline sheet. (laughs) Kind of the main topic, and then I'll expand it, God's righteousness. That word occurs more than any other word in the book of Romans, except maybe the word's the or something like that, but all of the terms and theological ideas, righteousness occurs 55 times. So the book has something to do with the righteousness of God, and that righteousness is provided for scumbags (laughs) or sinners. And it's vindicated, here's chapters 9 through 11, vindicated for Israel. So the first eight chapters, God's righteousness provided for scumbags. We'll have to use that throughout our exposition. And chapters 12 through the end of the book and applied in life situations. So we have an applicational section, and I think that's a summary of the whole book. 
Chapters 1 through 8, God's righteousness provided for sinners. You can even expand that in terms of coming to know God. That's the first five chapters. In other words, how do you enter into salvation? And then 6 through 8, God's righteousness provided to be able to live out the Christian life. Chapter 6 through 8. All right? Makes sense? Kind? God's righteousness is vindicated. In other words, God is perfectly righteous. Good question, though. And maybe I ought to rephrase that. Perfectly righteous in setting, we're going to find out that he set Israel aside for a period of time. And the misconception in many churches is that God is done with Israel. And there's a lot of what's called replacement theology that God replaced the church and now is using the church and has abandoned Israel. That's why I mentioned covenants and promises. Those chapters are going to make clear God's righteousness is vindicated in that he's perfectly righteous in setting Israel aside, but he has not abandoned Israel ultimately and totally. And in fact, chapter 11, all of Israel in the future will be saved. God is dealing with a time frame in history that will come to an end and God is going to go back and reestablish the nation of Israel. And from our last study, the Olivet Discourse, God may be in the process of starting that process already. We saw there's a nation of Israel in the land already today. So that's what I mean by vindicated for Israel in that God is perfectly righteous in the way that he's handling Israel and he will be perfectly righteous His promises will be totally fulfilled exactly as he revealed them in the Old Testament. And he's entered into covenant. Those covenants will be fulfilled. And Romans 11 says, all of Israel shall be saved. That's future. All right? And then we have the life applications. So there's a whole book in just a few phrases there. Jenny. That's right. God has entered into a legally binding Covenant is what it's called in the Bible. Think of it more as a what? Contract. Very good. It's a contract. Just like a legal contract that you enter into with a bank, God did not have to, but he chose to enter into covenant with the nation of Israel. And that covenant spells out the rest, not only Israel's history, but how God will deal with the rest of the nations as well. And when he entered into covenant, it specified all of the rest of the parameters of world history. And a lot of world history is still future. We call that prophetic. So there's that's the essence of the book. So we can go home now. If you understand that, you understand the book. We got it all. You got it all. Good. Okay. Okay, very quickly, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I think most of this you know, but this helps you to understand and puts the whole book in a little bit of a perspective. So let's look at a little historical background. Sometimes this is more important than others. It depends on the book. And sometimes the author is very clearly spelled out. And we can spend a a lot of time on this, but I'm going to go through this very quickly. Now, what you want to think about is how do you come to these conclusions? How do you come to the conclusion that Paul is the author? And if you want to think more kind of logically and systematically, you want to start off, and you want to start off always with what does the book itself claim? 
We call that internal evidence. What does the book itself say about who the author is? And some people would accuse you of, or us of circular reasoning, but in fact, this is not circular reasoning. This is just this is just what is done in a courtroom, if you will. You look at the defendant, and he gives his testimony. This is his witness in a courtroom. So when we're looking at the book itself, we're looking for what the book itself is saying about authorship. That's called internal evidence. Make sense? And since this is a book that we believe claims to be inspired, in other words, its origin is God himself, and when we say inspired, what we mean that we believe that everything that is contained in this book is exactly what God intended to communicate to us. And there's lots of scriptures that give us that that doctrine or that idea or that concept. So we're going to look at what the book itself says, and I'm going to go through this quickly. So the internal evidence, the book, like all of Paul's writings, he claims for himself. And usually he starts off, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he does in this book. In other words, he says, it's Paul. Now, that does not mean that it's the Apostle Paul, because there were others that had that same name in the first century. Now, not very many that we know of historically, but it could be any Paul. So you look beyond that. He mentions in chapter 11, 1, if it's the, whoever the author is, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So this kind of narrows it down. So he's Jewish, for one, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you compare what these little bits and pieces of data, you compare that with what we know historically from other sources, and the accumulation of the data will point to the Apostle Paul that is described in the book of Acts and is mentioned in other books as well. Another piece of data, he mentions a journey to Jerusalem, chapter 15, verses 25 through 27. So whoever this author is that is named Paul is someone that took a trip. And if you check it out in the book of Acts, you find out that Paul took a journey to Jerusalem, and he's mentioning that there. He mentions two individuals by the name of uh, Priscilla and Aquila, chapter 16, verse 3. And again, outside of the book of Romans, in the book of Acts, these were close associates, close friends of Paul. And we're just gathering data from the book itself. See what I'm doing here? And he mentions an intention to visit Rome. This helps us to also perhaps narrow down the time that this letter was written, if in fact Paul is the author, in 1623. And by the way, he does that at the very beginning of the book as well, in chapter 1, talking about an intention to visit these people. So he has a relationship with some of the people at Rome, so he knows some of them, whoever the author may be. And if you study the vocabulary of other books that Paul writes and some of his other theological ideas, like the book of Galatians, in fact, Galatians is kind of like a mini-Romans, if you will, deals with essentially similar theological problems and issues. There's some parallels between the language, uh, vocabulary, the ideas of other writings by the same individual that's named Paul. And I, I have already mentioned most of his books begin very, very similar. So that's what we mean by that. And the style, the logic, Paul seemed to have had a very logical mind, and you see that especially in this book. 
So the conclusion I come to is that uh, Paul is the author. Now somebody read 16.22 to kind of overturn everything that I've said so far. Who's got it? I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, read you the Lord. Uh-oh. Oops. <laughs> who's this Tertius guy? And who's this guy that claims to have written this book? Ah, very good, very good. You've read ahead, right? In the first century, it was not uncommon to have someone very similar to what we have today, a secretary and a CEO, will go and call the secretary in and ask her, will you take dictation? And he dictates a letter, and she writes it or types it out, And then the CEO reads it and says, well, you misspelled this word, and let's rephrase this. I like this better. Da-da-da-da. He marks it up, and then after she's done and brings it back, he says, okay, I like it. He signs his name and sends it. And in the first century, there was something similar to that. And we see other evidence from other passages as well. That it was not unusual for somebody like Paul to use what's called an amenuensis or... Uh, what was the word that you used? Stenographer or a secretary, that sort of thing. But the inspiration, in other words, God overseeing and superintending the end product is when Paul signs his name and it is what he intended and the Holy Spirit had put in him and controlled all of the thoughts and the writing such that what we have is what God intended us to have. So Tertius is an amanuensis or a person who probably either took exact dictation, more than likely, or in some cases in the first century, what that kind of a person would do is the CEO would just say, well, tell them about this and just give the idea and you word it as best you can and we'll look at it at the end. So that's what that passage is all about. So that's the internal evidence. Now, is there anything outside of the book that kind of steers you in a different direction? Is there some writings of the first century or even later that might question Paul's authorship? Well, we have lots of confirmation. In other words, there's lots of writing in the first century and even later. The apostolic fathers are those church leaders in the first century that are writing either commentaries or they're writing their own uh, apologetics or or writings that have survived almost 2,000 years or 1,900 years. In the first century, we call them apostolic fathers. One of them is called Clement of Rome. Another one is Ignatius. Another one is Polycarp. And by the way, Polycarp may have had a relationship with the Apostle John. So they're very, very close to the writing. And in their writings, when they refer to the book of Romans, they attribute Paul as the author, Paul the Apostle. Second century, we have Irenaeus, we have Justin Martyr, we have uh, Hippolytus, and they do the same. And we also have some early church lists that include the book of Romans, and in those lists, they include Paul as its author. And one of the documents, I think it's 3rd century, it's called the Muratorian Fragment, that has a reference to several books of the New Testament, and in that it attributes Paul as the author. So all of the external evidence actually points in the same direction, 
And there's really no evidence against the writing of Paul except 1,900 years where we think we are smarter than ancient people. Liberalism has raised some arguments, but most of those arguments, even the liberals don't even hold to, and most of them accept Paul as the writer. So that gives you a little bit of background. And who is Paul? He's the ultimate of Jews. In fact, this is his own description. He's a Jew of Jews. And in some of his other writings, like Philippians, he describes himself in glowing terms, defending his apostleship, or Second Corinthians as well. So it's Paul. Paul is from Tarsus. See that little city right here? Give you orientation. This is uh, Israel down here. There's Jerusalem, Caesarea. Israel ends about right here, uh, present day, and also in first century. So Paul is what is present-day Turkey, city of Tarsus. Tarsus was an important uh, Roman city. We have remains even archaeologically from that time frame. You might just jot these down because these just add uh, more confirmation for the sake of time. We won't read those. If we had more time, we could do that. But Acts 16.37 puts Paul in, I think in his own words, mentioning that he's from Tarsus, and also in chapter 21.39. And here's another photograph, uh, Tarsus City Street, and Bruce, you can appreciate that. Curb and gutter, not too much different from what we do today. They had a sewer system. Pardon me? Better shape. Better shape than, well, yeah, than some of ours. This 2,000 years. They had a form of pavement, stones, essentially, that still exist. Our highways, we have to refurbish every 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, right? So these are the remains of Tarsus. Before his conversion, Acts chapter 8 and 9, he was a persecutor of the church, persecutor of believers. Acts chapter 9 records his conversion on the road to Damascus. And it was a dramatic conversion, a unique conversion. God intervened himself. In fact, it's an illustration of what God does to every individual. When we come to Christ, we come kicking and screaming. And we want to come to him on our own terms. And uh, he has to knock our legs out from under us and make us realize that we have to come on his terms and through Jesus Christ and him alone and what he did on the cross. And Paul was that kind of person. He was a killer of Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to destroy the believers that lived there. And on that road, on the way, the Lord appeared to him, knocked him to the ground, blinded him to get his attention, and spoke to him in an audible way that he could understand. And he was dramatically converted in a very spectacular way. Now, all of our conversions may be more quiet outwardly, but the same radical effects affect us spiritually when we are converted. In the history of Acts, we can trace the the, the life of Paul, his conversion. And by the way, you can remember how old Paul was by just tracking on the timeline. He was about 35 in about 35 A.D. So he would have died about at age 60, 65, somewhere in that time frame. So we have his conversion. We have his early ministry. That's recorded in uh, chapters 9 and 
skipped about chapters 12 to get the early ministry of Paul. And immediate, shortly after, he sent on his missionary journeys. There are three, and perhaps even uh, parts of others. So we have first missionary journey about 49 A.D. So Paul is how old on his first missionary journey? 49, about my age, right? When I was 49. (laughs) Second missionary journey, 52, somewhere in that time frame. Third missionary journey, 54, somewhere in that time frame. Then he has a trip to Rome. Well, he writes 13 epistles, 13 of the New Testament epistles. We have his later ministry. He has a trip to Rome, and then the book of Acts ends in his Roman imprisonment. Peter is martyred about 64, and then Paul is martyred about 60, what do I have there? About 66, somewhere in that time frame. So he was about 66. Unfortunately, he had just shortly retired and didn't have much of a retirement. So that's the author. The audience, the church at Rome, and there's a lot that we could talk about here. And this is more important than... To understand that Paul wrote, there's a lot, we'll see reflections of who Paul is in the book itself. So it's important, but this is even more important, who the audience is. And this is very, very important in all of the letters of the New Testament, including those that are authored by others other than Paul. Now, let me give you a clue. In interpreting the letters of the New Testament... One of the main things that you want to understand, this is very, very important because it will help you to understand accurately what uh, what is being written. One of the major characteristics of what's called epistolary literature, what's epistolary literature? <laughs> Books that we call letters, and in fact, they were letters, much like what you would write today. Some of them are more formal, like if you're writing a letter to a school, you might say, for application for entrance or something. Well, none of you, except maybe are young people. Or maybe you're writing a letter to an employer, and you've got your resume, etc. That's a more formal letter. Or maybe a business letter is more formal. The Book of Romans tends to be a more formal, a more public letter. Or you might write a letter to just a close friend or, you know, a relative. And it's very personal, and in some cases, maybe very even private. You might even have things in there that you don't care that others read, because it's sent to that individual. In the New Testament, we have the full spectrum. The book of Romans is like a formal letter. It's a letter, though. But we have a book like Philemon that is written to an individual, and Paul writes that to a particular individual concerning Philemon concerning that individual. Now, it's not written to Philemon, it's written to another person, but it's very personal, and it's private, primarily private. But since it's inspired, God said, I want everybody to read this mail, so we're reading somebody else's mail. Now, in reading somebody else's mail, it's very, very important that we understand what's going on with the people that are being addressed, and who is being addressed. Does that make sense? So when you look at the audience, that's what you want to understand because then you can understand the letter and now after you understand the letter, now you can take that understanding and apply it in your life. 
This is fundamental Bible hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. Got it? And it's very important. And I mention this because some take a different view. It's to people that know Jesus Christ, who have been converted, who have experienced salvation. We call them believers. Because of the nature of the content of the book, there are some that think that perhaps he's writing to an audience that had some unbelievers. Because he's dealing with the issues of salvation. He's dealing in a large measure to issues of conversion or regeneration. So there's a lot of writers that take the view that he's writing to a mixed group. And I think virtually all of the letters of the New Testament are written to believers. Remember we made a big deal about this when we studied Hebrews. Now that book, it was very important. And there's two theological approaches to the book of Hebrews. Same kind of issue here with the book of Romans. So we'll be stressing these concepts are written to people that know Jesus Christ to give them a better foundation in understanding these issues related to salvation. Theologians call that soteriology, the whole study of soteriology. And that's what the main thrust of the book deals with. In order so that believers can be better equipped to now take those principles and share them with the unbeliever. And the unbeliever can understand clearly from what scripture teaches how to come into a saving relationship. So it's for believers. Now there's a large group of Jewish people in that audience. And again, for the sake of time, we're getting close to the end of our time here. Here are some of the main verses that speak, and these are very clearly addressed to a Jewish audience, or at least the Jewish portion of the people that were in Rome. There's also, and probably the majority of the people that lived in Rome, because Rome was the capital of the whole Roman Empire, and there were all kinds of people that were part of the church at Rome. We'll talk some more about that next next time. I'll give you more detail on that. But there's a large group of people that are non-Jewish. We call them Gentile. And these verses make it clear. Chapter 1, verse 13, 6, verse 17, and 19. Chapter 11, 13 through 32. So it's a mixed group. So basically both of them, both Jew and Gentile, so it's very broad. In fact, all of humanity. And by way or through inspiration, it's written to us as well, even though we're reading somebody else's mail. And it's particularly to a particular church. And let's see, we're getting close to the end here. We'll stop here, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what the church was like in the first century, and then we'll continue the background, and we'll do our flyover next week. The closing thought, systematic theology. We're going to deal with a lot of theology. Systematic theology was once considered the queen of sciences. And I stress the word science, particularly those of you that have technical backgrounds. Who wants to close for Go ahead, Bob. How do we do things? your words Amen. Just 